all of us face situations in life in which we have friends, relatives, family, who are in the midst of suffering in one way or another. And, you know, it's typical that you feel at a loss. What do you say to someone who's in the midst of suffering? Take it further. What do you say to someone who not only is suffering right now, but a person whose situation you know is only going to get worse? Not going to get better, but only going to get worse. What do you say? What do you do to help them through that? That's the situation that Jesus addresses in the second letter of seven to the churches in Revelation chapter 2. This second letter is written to Smyrna, kind of an odd name. The name Smyrna comes from the word, in fact it is actually the word myrrh. Myrrh, so the city of myrrh, located on the modern Turkish coast. You remember last time we started here, two weeks ago, we looked at Ephesus on the Turkish coast. If we came up 40 miles, we'd hit the city of Smyrna. It's modern-day Izmir in Turkey today, Izmir. It's a port city, and so when this letter was written, pretty wealthy place. As you know, if you were a port city, the goods and services of the world came through your streets, and that was true of Smyrna, so pretty wealthy place. Also, it got its name because of its trade and because it was a key location for refining myrrh. Now, the term myrrh means bitter. And it's because myrrh, the the raw product called myrrh, is the sap. It's the oozing sap that comes from a certain family of evergreen trees. They grow from North Africa across into India. And they ooze this sap, this myrrh. It's bitter. And it's pungent. And so it was typical, in fact, you can get this incense today. It was typical in this period of life, this myrrh would be taken, it would be refined, this bitter gum would be refined, and then it would be used in perfumes. And what's the stuff that smells good you put in? Incense. So you can read, if you look up in your concordance, myrrh is used frequently in the Old Testament especially. Myrrh was incense used in the temple. The purification rites for the priest used myrrh. When Joseph was sold to slavery in Egypt, it was with merchants bearing myrrh down to Egypt. Myrrh was used when Jesus was embalmed. It not only was a fragrant uh, uh, used for perfume and incense, but it was also used at burial. You know, when you wrap someone up in those cloths, you included myrrh in that wrap. And myrrh was one of the gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus in Matthew 2. You remember they come from the east. One of the gifts they bring him is myrrh. So Jesus is writing a church in a city whose name means bitterness. Bitterness. It's associated with both death on one hand. It's used to wrap those who've died. It's also used in perfumes. It's because it's aromatic. So you've got Jesus addressing a church whose city name is associated with bitterness, death, and fragrance or perfume. This is the shortest of the seven letters. It's only four verses long. This is a little unusual too. You know, we said the normal format is Jesus addresses them. He praises something that's praiseworthy He warns them, and he gives them a promise. 
to the city of Smyrna, there's not a clear praise and there is no warning of judgment. And I think the reason is because suffering is the issue for this city and for this church. And Jesus pairs down his message to one key theme or element. It's the one thing he says to them is, be faithful. His words of comfort to Christians in the midst of trial and trouble are words of command. His comfort is to command them to remain faithful, to hang in there, don't give up, don't give in. And you remember we said that not only does Jesus address seven churches, literal churches, geographically situated at the time John's writing, but that these also almost certainly figure the age of the church through history. And we said Ephesus looks like, seems to be a good fit with those early apostolic days of the church, maybe up into the 100s or so. Great teaching, great doctrine, faithfulness in those things. Smyrna, certainly, if we take that tack, represents the next historical phase of church life, and that is the stage or the age of persecution. And if you know any history at all, the church was persecuted severely and often up until about 313, which is when Constantine, the Roman Caesar, declares Christianity the state religion. But until that point, Christianity suffered frequent, severe persecution. And so Smyrna, we can take it, we can look at these the address specifically to Smyrna, the folks who were living when John was living and wrote this, but also as we're going through it, think of the early church up to about Constantine 313, that this letter also very specifically applied to that period as well. Starting at verse 8, Jesus says to the angel, to the messenger of the church in Smyrna, the city of Myrrh, write, the first and the last, the one who was dead and has come to life, says, or says this, the first and the last, the one who became dead and came back to life, says this. You remember to every church, Jesus introduces himself in some way that's specifically meaningful to their situation. So to a suffering church, Jesus says the first and the last. And you remember in chapter 1, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, these were all terms of eternity. Jesus says the one who begins everything and comes after everything, the one without beginning, the one without end, that's who I am, that's who's talking to you, one thing, deity. I'm deity. But he also says, the one who's addressing you in this letter was dead, became dead, but has come back to life. These folks, as this letter makes plain, some are going to die martyrs. And so as Jesus is addressing them, he's saying, guys, the one who's giving you these words, I've already gone through death. You're not experiencing anything I have not experienced. Also, Even in death, you're only experiencing something that I have already conquered on your behalf. So God of eternity, past, present, and future, and Jesus, the God-man who experienced death but conquered it, that's the one who's addressing these suffering Christians in the town of Smyrna, the ones who are going to face death themselves. He tells them here also that he knows what's going on in their life. That's good to know. Jesus knows everything that's going on in your life and mine. In in their lives, in verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation 
and your poverty, but you are rich, parenthetically he says, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue or a place, a gathering of Satan. The first thing Jesus says he knows is their tribulation. I know your tribulation. The Greek term here has to do with being crushed or being pressed or being hemmed in. He says, I know that you guys are experiencing afflictions and it feels like your life is being crushed down, weighed in, pressed in. You know when you make apple cider, Russ knows this, you put apples in a press and you compress it and it squeezes them down, it crushes them till the juice comes out. That's what these guys felt like. Jesus says, your life feels like you're being crushed. That's the tribulation. You're carrying a weight. You feel the weight that is too heavy to hold. You know, who of us at one time or another doesn't feel like we're experiencing something in our life that's just bigger than we can handle? It's something so heavy it just weighs us down. Jesus says, I know your tribulation, this crushing weight. For them, it is persecution. It's not the weight of personal sin. It's not the weight of natural tragedy that happens can happen to anyone in any place. This is the crushing weight of persecution. And remember, I love history, and if you read the history of this time, the crushing weight of persecution was all to get them to renounce Christ. In this Roman Jewish world, they were persecuted unless and until they renounced Christ and embraced the gods of the age. That was the deal. Their faith was what they were being crushed for. Their Christian testimony is what brought this crushing weight. Jesus says to them, I know what you're going through. I realize this crushing, pressing affliction you're going through because you bear my name. One thing he knew. He also says, I know your poverty. This term for poverty, it doesn't mean you're poor. Like we think of someone in the United States, you're poor, means you maybe you don't have the biggest color TV. When he says, I know your poverty, he says, I know that you have absolutely no material resources left. And that's because the Roman officials or citizens of the country that persecuted them, Smyrna here specifically, would seize legally or steal illegally with no legal repercussions the goods, the homes, and the wealth of these Christians. If you read in Hebrews later, it'll, it will say the same thing. You suffered the loss of your goods. These are Christians who not only are being persecuted physically, all their livelihood has been stolen. It's been taken. The poverty here has the thought of a beggar on the street. Someone reduced to the lowest level of poverty. That's, that's where they're at. That's what suffering looks like for them. And Jesus says... I know about it. His uh, phrase here, but you are rich, this would, this would probably be a, a slap in the face unless it was Jesus saying it. He's speak, speaking to people weighted down by persecution, facing martyrdom, as we'll read. They've lost everything materially, and he says, but you're wealthy. But you're wealthy. Easy to say, Jesus. Easy to say, but you're wealthy. But remember, he's talking to folks who have faith and eternal life. 
And he says, you may have lost all these other possessions, these material goods, but that's really not what your life consists of anyway. Jesus says that in the Gospels. So he's reminding them that in spiritual things and in eternity to come, you have real, true wealth. It's interesting, compare this to the last church Jesus addresses. The last church he addresses says to themselves, he says, you say, I am rich. I've become wealthy. I don't need anything. But you don't know you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, blind, and naked. Jesus looks at one church which has great material wealth, and he says, you're poor. You're a beggar. You're in poverty. He looks at a poor church and says, you're wealthy. You're rich. And in both cases, the thought is material wealth is no wealth at all. Not ultimately. Not in any ultimate sense. Spiritual wealth, eternal life wealth, is all that matters in the end. And in that, they have abundance. The last thing he says is he knows the blasphemy of those who call themselves Jews. The term for blasphemy here is slander. They're being persecuted. They're suffering the loss of all their goods. And they're being lied about, slandered, lied about. Have you ever been lied about? Someone told things about you intentionally that were untrue? It happens, doesn't it? It happens. They were being slandered. This is interesting because when it says... The people that are slandering you call themselves Jews. Now, Jesus isn't saying they're not Jews. They are Jews. Uh, Again, during this time in history, no one hated Christians more fervently than the Jews. Christianity was the red-headed stepchild of Judaism, and the Jews wanted nothing to do with Christians. Once it became clear, once this Christian sect had set hold, set foot, and gained hold, and then began to spread, the Jews vehemently opposed it. The Jews, as a group, had some special protections under Roman law. They wanted none of that protection for this new sect, the Christians. They disavowed Christianity. They wanted nothing to do with it. They persecuted it as violently as the Roman government did. So Jesus says these people who are ethnically Jews, they gather in a synagogue. He says it's really a synagogue not of my father, but of Satan. And one of Satan's titles, the devil, means slanderer, liar. So Jesus says, you guys, persecution, loss of all your material goods, and you're being lied about, you're being slandered by those who say they belong to God, but in fact belong to the slanderer, the liar. So these, the Jews that are slandering you are behaving absolutely like their father, their real father, the slanderer and liar, Satan. Listen to a few of the slanders. These were common. When you hear these, you're floored and you think, how in the world did they come up with these? Common slander of the Christians in these days, uh, incest was one. This is not based on 1 Corinthians 5, by the way. Incest was a common slander about Christians. This came from their attendance at what was called the love feast, the Lord's Supper. You remember for the early church, this was a big meal that they shared in common like the Last Supper, like a Passover. They did as a church. 
And it was called the love feast. So the Jews and the pagans said this love feast is actual sexual immorality. And not only that, but they actually have sex with their family members. Of course, there was no truth to this, but this was the slander. Based on this, the grain of truth was that they went to a common meal that was called a love feast. Another one was that they were called cannibals. The early church was accused of being cannibals because they ate Jesus and they drank his blood. So Christians were called cannibals. The one that really floors me, uh, the early Christians were called atheists. Atheists. You say, well, how do they get that? You know, without God. Uh, But the reason they were called atheists is because they denied any God but the true God. So they refused to embrace the other gods of the day. Most of the Romans, if you read Pliny and some of the other writers from this day, most people in this day practiced a public religion in which they did not personally believe. But the public religions related to the Roman or Greek gods and related to Caesar were seen as glue that held the Roman Empire together. So even though most of certainly the educated classes understood their own religions were myths and fables, they understood that, they still practiced those religions because they understood it was part of what held their empire together. The Christians refused to be good citizens by refusing to acknowledge Caesar as God or the other gods as gods. And so to the Romans, they were atheists without the true or without the right or proper gods. One of the things that is careful just in passing, you and I want to make sure that we resemble our Father in heaven who speaks the truth in love and who doesn't follow Satan, the God of this world, who slanders. When we say things or when we repeat things about others, make sure we're speaking the truth in love that we're not participating in slander, knowingly or unknowingly, uh, untrue things about others. Um, If you look around the world today, read the newspapers, read magazines, read some of the magazines we get as a church, you know, I scratch my head sometimes when I wonder what in the world energizes the Muslims in Indonesia to persecute Christians the way they do today. What motivates the communists in Korea and China to hunt Christians down like dogs and imprison them or starve them to death. You know, although Smyrna represents this early period of church history, there are areas of the world today that suffer no less persecution, no less severely than these folks were here or than the early church did. And if you say, what in the world? Based on what human motive can you stir up such energy to hate someone else? What human motivation, what do they get out of persecution, mutilation, bombing, murder, imprisonment, etc. of Christians? What human motive is strong enough? What do they get out of doing it? And you know, in the end, I say, based in part on this, it's not just human motivation you're dealing with. It's demonic, it is satanic energy and motivation behind this. There's no payoff big enough to justify what one group does to another group. You don't get anything. You just destroy someone or a church building. But you didn't raise a mosque. You didn't get anything out of it. 
But it's, it's a reminder. It's the long war between heaven and earth that we're all caught up in. It's not just a human against a human. It's not just a Roman against a Christian or a Jew against a Christian. It's Satan against God. And we're on the chessboard and the, the game is in play and we're part of a bigger scene. And so it's Satan who's behind slander. It's Satan who's behind persecution and opposition. And it's his energy that energizes this fanatic, otherwise incomprehensible fervor with which some groups persecute Christians. But you know, this is true throughout Old Testament history and New Testament history. Those who belong to God are always persecuted by their relatives. So the Jews persecute the Christians. You remember Esau persecuted Jacob. Ishmael persecuted Isaac. More often than not, it's not atheists who persecute. It's one religious group persecuting what they see as a rival religious group. In fact, if you look at the wars going on around the world today, uh, most of them are religiously motivated. So it's not just human energy that you're dealing with. Human motivation doesn't answer the degree to which Christians are persecuted. It doesn't because it can't. We're in a bigger picture. And often as not, it's those who are religious or claim something religious who are persecuting the true followers of God. You know, Satan and Satan's followers are as comfortable in the robes of religion as they are in a shaman's headdress or the role of an atheist or anything else. Satan plays deceiver as well as accuser. So opposition can come from those who say they're atheists or it can come from those who claim another religion, but it's satanically inspired. And you know, whether we like to think of it or not, or whether those who aren't Christians will acknowledge it or not, we're all on one side of the line or the other. We're in Christ's kingdom or we're in Satan's. We're advancing God's program or we're advancing Satan's program. There is no Switzerland in the spiritual realm. There's no safe haven. There's no neutral ground. You're on one side or the other. And so these Christians, the line was very clearly drawn in the sand in this day, as it is in other parts of the world today. These Christians were in God's kingdom, and it was because of that that they were suffering. In verse 10, Jesus says, Don't fear what you're about to suffer. The devil is going to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested. You'll have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful till death. I'll give you the crown of life. I think it's interesting what he does not say here. He does say, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Don't be afraid. He doesn't say, because I'm going to come rescue you. He doesn't say, because it really won't be that bad. He doesn't say the cavalry is going to come in. And you'll be saved. You'll be spared. You know, we've got stories in Acts 4 and 12 where Peter or the apostles are in prison. What's God do? He sends an angel, opens the door, turns them out. But later on, Peter and all the other apostles, as far as we know, besides John, they aren't delivered. They're all martyred. They all die for their faith in the end. And to this group, Jesus does not say, I'm going to free you. He says, don't be afraid. We talked about before related to fear. Jesus says, big picture, don't fear man who can only kill you. 
What's the worst someone else can do to me? He can kill me. Jesus makes it sound like that's not a big deal. But in the big picture, it's because it's not. If we live 100 years, 200 years, if you live as old as Methuselah, 969 years, compared to eternity, what is it? It's the blink of an eye, and it's over. So that if as a Christian I die at 30 instead of 60, let's say, what did I really lose? A blink of an eye. Not a big thing. Jesus says, don't be afraid what you're going to suffer. Don't be afraid. Uh, He says, the devil's going to throw some of you into prison. Going to throw some of you into prison. You'll be tested and you'll have tribulation, this pressing, crushing weight of trouble for 10 days. 10 days. This thought of trial or trouble for Christians. uh, You remember in John's Gospel, Jesus says, hey, if you belong to me, what are you going to get in this world? Trouble. Trial. He promises it. Paul does too. If you belong to me, you get troubles. You get trials. It's not a surprise. Don't think it's strange. It's what you get as a Christian in this earth. The upside is that God says, I'll take the trials and the troubles in your life, and I'll use them for some redemptive purpose. The trial's not fun, and the suffering in itself has no value, but I'll use those hard things, and I'll make you more like my son. I'll free you from some of the dross or the sin in your life. So, you know, if you take an ore out of the ground and you heat it up, if the ore could talk, it would probably say, please turn the fire off. Doesn't feel good. But what happens when that heat gets turned up, things are reduced to their molten state, and the gold, for instance, or silver, or steel, metal, iron, is separated from the impure elements. And when Jesus says about the testing to come, it's not going to be fun, it's not going to be easy, it's painful. But he promises to use it to separate the pure from the impure, to make them, make us, more like his son, Jesus. It's just like myrrh that's crushed, this gum resin, bitter gum resin, is crushed. In the end, it yields this aromatic, fragrant aroma. But it doesn't happen until it's been crushed and refined. And Jesus says, you're going to be crushed. You're going to go to prison, and some of you are going to death. Keep the faith. He says for 10 days... I assume this means 10 literal days for these folks in Smyrna. It could be a round number also that means you're going to have tribulation for a limited but extended period of time. And then also, there were historically 10 clear and distinct periods of persecution under the Roman Caesars until 313. Very clear, definable periods of persecutions. Things would die down. A Caesar would would utter a new ruling and Christian persecution began again in earnest. So they went through a cycle of 10 periods of persecution up to 313. It's important to remember that this persecution that occurred to them happened, as it were, with God's blessing. Now, Jesus doesn't say he's throwing them in prison. He says Satan is going to throw you in prison. Remember Job's story? Satan brings about trouble. 
to Job and his family, doesn't he? But who's standing by watching? God's watching. God doesn't stop it. In fact, in Job's occurrence, if you'll notice, it's God actually who starts everything rolling. Have you noticed my servant Job? This is true here too. God doesn't apologize about this. He says, the devil's going to throw you in prison. I know about it, and I'm not stopping it. I'm allowing this. And in your life and mine, sometimes we find ourselves in situations that we can hardly believe a loving God will allow to happen to his children, his faithful children, like you and me. But he does. And in this case... He said, the devil is going to have you thrown in prison and I'm going to let him. I'm not going to stop it. I'm going to let him. I'm going to allow it. And that must mean from God's perspective that in the big scheme of things, what he's going to accomplish through the suffering is more important than us avoiding the pain or the trial. None of us enjoys pain and I don't, say that we should, or trial, or troubles. But neither should we make it our aim in life specifically to avoid it. We're to be faithful. As those who belong to Christ, we're going to suffer. But Jesus promises to use it. So even though Satan's the active agent involved, God is allowing it. Listen to what Jesus said to Peter. This is the night of the Last Supper. This is the night Peter tells Jesus, Lord, don't worry, even if everyone else falls away, I'm your man, I'm with you. Jesus says to Peter in Luke 22, Simon, Simon. I think it's kind of, he's calling him a dear friend. He says his name twice, Simon, Simon. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, to crush you. You know what wheat is sifted? You crush it. You break it up. You injure it. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when once you have turned, you've repented and been restored, he says, then strengthen your brothers. Peter made some claims and done some things in his life which apparently gave Satan the ability to say to God, you cannot protect him related to this. You must allow me to do A, B, and C. And God says, okay. But even this picture of sifting, you know what? You sift wheat for a reason, don't you? You guys don't take wheat and eat the whole thing. You take it and you beat it. You pulverize it to separate the wheat kernel from the chaff. And then you throw it up in the air. This is the way they used to do it. And what does the wind do? It blows the chaff away. And what's left? The wheat, what you're after. Well, it's the same thought. God says to Peter, Peter, I'm going to let Satan be my sifter. Satan gets chaff, and I get wheat. And it's the same with the ore principle. Satan turns up the fire. God says, I'll use that. I'll let it happen. I'll use it because I'll get gold, and Satan gets dirt. Or it's like the myrrh. God says, Satan wants to crush you. I'm going to let, I'm going to let him. And when your life, like myrrh, is crushed, it's going to yield a fragrant aroma for me. 
So all these trials, these tribulations, the crushing weight, the persecution, God says in the end, I'll use it all. Satan gets the chaff, I get the wheat. He gets the bitter, I get the sweet. In your life, that's the point. If you have a strong enough stomach, you can read Eusebius's History of the Early Church, you can read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can read F.F. F. Bruce's The Spreading Flame. There's probably a few others you could read as well that talk about this period in church history where persecution was the norm. Amazing stories, one after another after another. In fact, just like Peter, there's many stories of Christians who faced with you know, guys, we're talking about Christians being put in arenas so that lions would come up and eat them while they're alive. Or Christians having wax, stiff wax wraps put around them and then set on fire. And this is happening to other people as you watch and you're being told, renounce Christ or face this. So I don't want to underestimate what they're facing. We shouldn't. I mean, I, I cannot imagine. Can't imagine. But it's not infrequently that you'll read stories of these Christians, they get weak need, as you can imagine, facing this kind of barbarity, this kind of murder and destruction. And some of them would say, we renounce Christ. And they'd say, Caesar's God or whatever. And not infrequently, those who had done that, guess what? They repented of their repentance. Just like Peter. Peter said three times, I don't know the guy. I don't know him. Jesus who? He was just in a courtyard. He didn't, there was no execution awaiting him. You know, most of the time you and I deny Christ in little or in big ways. There's no death sentence on the line. We don't let them know we're a Christian. We know we should. We know we should present the gospel or be the voice that stands up and declares the truth when everyone else around is agreeing to a lie, but we don't because we don't want to be rejected. We don't want to look foolish. We all do this. Many of these Christians who did it in the face of martyrdom, when they realized what they'd done, they recanted their repentance and said, Jesus is it, we're it. And then they went through with their martyrdom. They were faithful. And you know, this thing, what Satan's after is not your wealth or mine. It's not your reputation. You know, he can, he can, uh, he can take some pretty good damage. You, you and I can take some pretty serious and significant hits from the enemy. When people lie about you, it's not easy. When you lose your wealth, your ability to make a living, that's not easy. If you're in prison, that's, that's serious. He's not after any of that, of course, though. What he's after is the one thing he can't get which is your faith. He's after your faith. And that's the one thing God's preserving, your faith. He's not preserving your flesh, your good looks, your material wealth. He's preserving your faith. He's preserving your life in Christ. So to these guys facing death, Jesus' words of comfort are, remain faithful. Don't give up. You get the crown of life. The crown of life. So to those who are about to lose their short temporal life for Christ's sake, he says, don't worry, I've reserved something for you. Your life on earth is cut a little short, no big deal. I've got the crown of life for you. 
you're going to step through this porthole, this door of death. You're going to be into life. I've got a crown of life for you. I've got eternal, abundant, overflowing life waiting for you. Just remain true to the end. Don't give up. Don't quit the race early. Don't step out of the fight before it's over. Go through the finish line. Remain faithful to death. You're going to step through the door. You'll be with me. I'm going to give you the crown of life. Verse 11, concluding verse, he says, He who has an ear to hear. He who has an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes won't be hurt by the second death. Won't be hurt by the second death. There's absolutely no question about what the second death is. Revelation 20 and 21 make very clear, crystal clear, that the second death is hell. It's the lake of fire. It's the lake of fire. That's the second death. It's eternity separated from Christ. So the reward here is the crown of life. In some of these letters, it's hard to know when it says the one who overcomes gets this. Does that mean all Christians get it or just the overcomers? Do you remember last time we said overcomers in general are those who have faith? John says in 1 John, who are those who overcome the world? Those who have faith in Christ. Those who have faith in Christ. None of us as a reward gets eternal life. Okay? You and I don't earn eternal life. Eternal life, salvation, is God's gift to us by His grace, through faith, all earned, started, finished, kept by Jesus. I think if there's any question about the rewards that are promised to those who overcome, this letter to Smyrna answers, these, should be, these are true of all true Christians. All true Christians get eternal life. No Christian goes to the lake of fire, the second death. This is the thing. It's that we, we win in the end. We have nothing to lose. So Jesus says, guys, just finish the race. Because this is what's at the end. Eternal life. Abundant life. Overflowing life. You can't lose. Just remain faithful. Just remain true. Keep going. You get life in the end. I mentioned Peter. Let me wind down with Peter's words in 1 Peter 3. This is a guy who knew the temptation to deny Christ, didn't he? He did deny Christ. Satan sifted him in that process. God got wheat. Satan got chaff. Listen to what Peter writes years later. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Don't fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled. Same thing Jesus said to the Smyrnans. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Set Jesus aside in your hearts, being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. With gentleness and reverence. You're not accusing the accuser. You're answering with gentleness and reverence those who question you about your faith. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, when they lie about you, make sure that your life doesn't conform to those lies. When you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. There will be no substance to those slanders about you. It's better if God should will it so. Sometimes God wills it so that you suffer for doing what is right. But he says, don't suffer 
for doing what is wrong. Sometimes God wills. It is God's will. If you turn on the television sometimes or radio, you will hear people say that it is not God's will for you to suffer. Peter says, guys, sometimes it's God's will for you to suffer. God uses it. It is his will. So don't accuse the accuser. Don't worry about the slandering. You live an exemplary life. You live the life you know Christ called you to. You remain faithful. You let God take care of the other things. He says in chapter 4, And don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. You know, in the United States, where our God is the God of blue skies and green lights, if we get a little opposition as a Christian, if we're mocked a little bit, if we're ridiculed a little bit, if we're alienated a little bit, we wonder what we did wrong. And Peter says, guys, this is no surprise. Don't be surprised. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, and I think most of us have shared that degree this, this much, if that, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. This is the same thing Jesus is telling them. Be faithful to death. Why? Because you walk through that doorway of death into eternal life. And you'll have no regrets when you finish the race. Peter says that same thing here. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. When you're persecuted because you belong to Christ, Peter says, wear that proudly like a badge. When you suffer as a Christian, it's evidence that God, the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is on you. It's evidence that you belong to Jesus. You're being persecuted for his name. So think of it as a badge or an adornment. Don't be afraid of it. Make sure none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. Glorify God in that name. Most of us do not suffer persecution in the fashion we read about here. And most of us do not suffer persecution the way Christians are in other parts of the world. But listen, to the degree that you experience difficulty, hard times, rejection, whatever the suffering is, don't necessarily make it your aim or your goal to just avoid the suffering. Jesus says in Revelation, in John and Peter, remain faithful. Be the person in Christ you're called to be. Stick it out. Remain faithful. You get this crown in the end. You get rewarded. And the, the rejection we do suffer as Christians in this life now is evidence that we belong to Christ and his spirit is on us. And so rejoice in that. Three applications. The first is simply to be faithful. We've said that. It's easy. We get temptations, little temptations, all the time to not associate with Christ because we'll feel the odd person out. For us, we need to remain faithful. If there's one thing we take away from this today, it's keep the faith. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't bow to the pressure to somehow hide under the radar screen to not make it known that you're a Christian. Be faithful. Speak up when God gives you the opportunity to do so. 
Don't participate in slander when other people are. Do the right thing. Remain faithful to the end. God will use those tough times to produce godliness, which is the second application. When you and I do experience this suffering, ask God, Lord, what do you want to accomplish through this time of trial or suffering? What do you want to remove from my life? What sin, what deficiency do you want to free me from or minimize? You know, I look back at my life, I think of the issue of fear, and I can look back at so many things in which, man, I was just, I was thinking, Lord, save me from this situation. And he was, just not in the way I wanted. He was delivering me from my own fears, from my own sins. That was the deliverance he was giving me. It wasn't the situation. It was freedom from the things in my own life and heart, the deficiencies. So when you're persecuted or short of persecution, when you're suffering, ask God, Lord, what do you want to free me of here? How how do you want to use this to make me look more like your son? And then the third is to support those who experience persecution. Jesus doesn't say that in this letter, but in Hebrews 13.3, we're commanded to remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. In other words, it could happen to you. Remember those Christians, those of the faith, who are being persecuted because of Jesus. When it says, excuse me, remember them, it doesn't just mean think about them once in a while. The thought is we would remember them and care for them in any of the ways that we're able to. This is one of the key reasons we support as a church Voice of the Martyrs. Because this is an agency whose existence is tied to helping, aiding, remembering the suffering church. All they do around the world is aid Christians who live in oppressed portions of the world. So when pastors are murdered in India, Voice of the Martyrs is the ones, or one of the ones, taking care of their widows and children. Christians imprisoned in Saudi Arabia and India, sometimes facing the death penalty, are aided by Voice of the Martyrs and other agencies like them, Open Doors with Brother Andrew. But it's, that's one of the reasons, that's the key reason we support, support Voice of the Martyrs is because that's exactly what they do. It's one of the things we need to be participating in. Closer to home, if you know someone a Christian who's going through difficult times, we can at least pray for them. And we can pray for the situation they're in, that God will be accomplishing whatever his purpose in that difficulty is. I've gone on a little too long. I've shared the story of Polycarp before. I won't share it this morning. His is one of the great stories of the church of Smyrna. And if you have a chance, read the story of Polycarp He was the bishop of Smyrna, the city we're talking about. He died, he was martyred about 156 when he was 86 years old. Polycarp heard from John who wrote this letter. Polycarp was alive and well and probably heard this letter or read it himself when it came to the church at Smyrna. He doesn't die when it comes. He's not one of the ones who goes to prison. But years later, 50 or 60 years later, I wonder if these words rang in his ears. As he was faced in the arena with the Jews screaming for his blood, with the Romans threatening him first with the lions and then with fire, 
renounce Christ. And he said, how can I renounce him who's been faithful to me for 86 years? Great story, great reminder for us. Let's pray. Lord, we do not here experience the kinds of persecution typically that we read about or think about to the folks John addressed or to the early church or, Father, even to Christians in other parts of the world today. Lord, personally, we want to allow your Spirit to accomplish in us the sifting process when we experience suffering or trial, whatever it looks like, so that you are more and more able to see the image of your Son in us, so that we are more and more free of the sin and the dross. And Lord, help us not to attempt escape when the myrrh is being crushed or when the fire is turned up in our lives, but help us submit ourselves to your will to remain faithful, to allow you to make us over in the image of your Son. And Father, we prayed for Ganesh this morning in India. There are Christians all over the world today, Lord, facing this kind of imprisoning, martyrdom, crushing way to persecution. Lord, help us to really remember them and support them in all the occasions you offer us to do. And Lord, like Polycarp at the end of his life, help us to say, how could we renounce the one who's been so faithful to us? In Jesus' name, amen.